Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in Jesus Christ we already have a part in the victory, your victory over all evil, over uh, sin, death, and the devil. And we thank you that uh, your word declares and proclaims that victory to us, to create in, uh, in us faith, to strengthen it, and to sustain us until the day of Christ's return. So we pray that as we study now, you would uh, work amongst us powerfully by your Holy Spirit, that we might be encouraged uh, to entrust ourselves wholly to you, even in the midst of struggles, and that our lives would be marked at all times by your blessing. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so <clears throat> uh, last uh, time uh, we uh, uh, finished uh, chapter 14, uh, where we had the harvest uh, of the world uh, by the Son of Man, how uh, Jesus is uh, a description of Jesus' harvest, both of believers and unbelievers, those who gathered to his barn, if you like, and those who trampled down by his wrath at the last time. At, uh, now, we have had already uh, a, a series of uh, visions of seven. Uh, we have had... <coughs> uh, seven seals we have had seven trumpets now we come to our final series of seven items uh the seven uh bowls of incense seven bowls of god's uh wrath which uh, are delivered in chapter 16 but as before before the final um delivery of uh, or before the delivery of the uh, the seven uh, items which uh in in each cycle uh we have a short interlude so they're if like they're introduced but then before we encounter them we are first uh encouraged and strengthened in uh in faith by having a glimpse of christ's victory that is already real so as we go into the seven bowls of god's wrath <clears throat> um and we see again if like terrible things being announced first of all a reminder this is not a vision for the some uh, indeterminate future which we are to tremble at but rather it is it is a description of the world as it already is so the the seven bowls of uh, like the seven trumpets and the seven seals they describe the state of the world uh, between christ's ascension and his return which is the time in which we live and christians have lived ever since christ's ascension um and in in a sense it's a spiritual explanation for the way uh, for how why things are the way they are spiritually speak and uh so that we might not be uh frightened by this vision or not not be discouraged by that vision we're first given a vision of heaven once more that's that's the uh role the the um if you like the structure of this final vision so we see that the the vision is introduced but before it's before we see it there's an immediate pause in the revelation as we have a diff a glimpse uh, of heaven and so <clears throat> what we're going to do uh to begin with at least and we'll see how much time is left at the end uh is look uh read through all of chapter 15 in one go it's only eight verses i think um uh yeah eight verses so we'll read the whole thing in one sitting and then we will uh, discuss it um and if we have time we'll move on as well into the rest of the vision but uh if we begin with that could you have a reader please shall i thank you then i saw another sign in heaven great and amazing screen angels with seven pla plagues which are the last with them the wrath of god is finished and i saw what appeared to be sea of glass mingled with fire and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of gold in their hands, and they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your waves, O King of all the nations, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name, for you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous sets have been revealed. 
After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in the heaven was opened, and out of the sanctuary came seven angels with seven plagues, clothed in pure, bright linen and golden sashes round their chests, and one of the four living creatures gave the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives for ever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Thank you. Uh, any questions to get us uh, started or comments? Any thoughts on that passage? Anyone? There you just make uh, this um, um, phrase that is here in, in the middle of it, you know, referring to Almighty. I heard recently somebody say that the word Almighty, uh, in all the books of Bible, the most referred to in the book of Job and then in Revelation. So that was interesting when you think of what, what book of Job is about and then the Revelation. So most refer references to God Almighty. That is interesting. I, 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 I wasn't aware of the statistics. Um, mm. I'll have to go and do a bit of homework now and, and yeah. check Somebody it. And also yeah. see what the translation, because obviously uh, Job, Job was written in Hebrew and, and uh, Revelation in Greek, so I have to go and see see how that goes. So I'll, thank you. I'll, 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 I'll investigate. And if I remember, I'll report back next week. But what what do you think it tells us? So let's, let's just take that at face value. So you said there's an interesting in terms of the subject matter. In what sense? Because um, the the horrible suffering that Job goes through, uh, and nevertheless, you know, he is sort of a referring to God, the Almighty. He is in charge of everything. And then in the Book of Revelations, which tells of these, uh, well, uh, perhaps unpleasant things, or you know, something that is not pleasant. And here is God Almighty referred quite a lot, so that God is in control. Which is quite comforting to, to to see and hear. Indeed, thank you. Yes, um, <clears throat> and again, you know, the as you say, the whole subject matter of the Book of Job is the is the suffering of the righteous, uh, and Job's dilemma, of course, throughout the whole book, is that he doesn't he doesn't understand why he's suffering, and he assumes that he is suffering unjustly because. He, he sees no cause for God to be punishing him. Um, and all the time we are, we as readers have been given, are, are given privy access to the reason, which is that it is in fact, God suffers as a righteous man for the sake of his righteousness. His righteousness is the cause of his suffering rather than a reason for him not to, not to suffer. And as you say, what we are about to see is a vision of suffering in the world. And, you know, the, the sort of things that we're about to come across in chapter 16, all the kind of things that are going wrong in the world, we can see them. We can see them. It's not, you know, we, there's, you know, there is disease and there's all sorts of other, you know, suffering, phys physical suffering particularly. And we see it all everywhere around us all the time. And therefore, it's not, as it is not difficult to, to, in, in a sense, it's, it's, we can make that same connection. Why, why would God allow you? Can that kind of question that I get asked often? Why does God not do X? Why does He allow such and such? And so, yeah, thank you. That's a that's a helpful, helpful uh, aperitif for us as we as we go into into this text. Anything else? Anyone else? Would the sea of glass mean that uh, it's a very still sea? We'll answer. We'll answer the detailed questions in a moment. We'll come to that in okay. just. Well, I'm just uh, the same thing, though, which we have uh, seen so many times, which comes already uh, up in the Old Testament. Is again this uh, the smoke that covers so that nobody can go to the sanctuary until all this now is over. But it's again the same thing that God is there; He's in charge. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, and this is, I mean, essentially, if you want to, if you want to uh, reduce. Uh, the book of Revelation to a single line that essentially is it, the single line is Christ has won God is in control that's it that's the book of Revelation and and we're just seeing that in different ways uh, throughout 
Anyone else? Anything else? In that case, let's uh, then start looking at the data. So then I saw. So here we see that that phrase that John uses to announce the announce to us that there that a uh, vision, and he saw a sign uh, in heaven. <clears throat> And these angel, uh, uh, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues. At the moment we see the word plagues, that takes us in our Bibles, if you've been to Sunday school, <laughs> you will already know you hear plagues, and the first thing that comes to mind, I hope, uh, is the story of Moses and the Exodus, the ten plagues of Egypt. So as we read through this, and as we go through this, keep thinking Moses and Exodus. Because, of course, the story of Israel and the story of Moses and Exodus is that Israel is in anguish, in slavery, and suffering the wrath of an unjust king. And Pharaoh is this sort of like a archetypal evil ruler who is full of murderous intent against God's people. And and he kind of serves that role in so, so much so that when we come to, for example, Herod the Great in Matthew's Gospel, uh, beginning of Matthew's Gospel, or Herod Antipas with John the Baptist, they are cast as Pharaoh-like figures to, uh, to indicate that they are evil and they're working against God's plan, against God. That's the kind of Pharaoh occupies that position. And we've got people of Israel, God's people, whom he has made promises to already, and they are in anguish, they're suffering, they're being persecuted, they're being destroyed genocidally um, <clears throat> in Egypt. And while they're still suffering, and they know nothing of it, God says to Moses, and go to Egypt and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. In other words, God already has in mind that he's going to release his people from slavery, that he's going to do it, and he's already got the man for it before the man himself knows it, let alone the people in Egypt. So the whole plan is already fully formulated in God's mind. It's just a question of how it's going to play out. And as time goes on, the people of Israel, first Moses and then Aaron, and then the people of Israel, and finally Pharaoh, cotton on to this plan. But the only reason they don't realize it's there is because they're ignorant of it, not because it's not there. And when it happens, you know, and God, and, and essentially God turns the tables, and now the enemies the people of Egypt, are the ones on whom suffering is inflicted, the plagues. And that leads to the people of Israel being freed from bondage and beginning their journey towards the promised land. And they do so via Sinai, and in Sinai they receive the law and the covenants, and they receive the tabernacle, the sanctuary, the tent sanctuary, where God promises to be with them, meet them. And we have the pillar of fire, pillar of cloud, um, <clears throat> showing that God is constantly guiding, leading them. And he provides for them until they enter into the promised land. That's the that's the story. Now, you, you drop in on any part of that story and knock on a, you know, the tent pole of, a, of an Israelite and say, how's it going? <laughs> and you might not get, it's going great. We're winning. We, are, we you know, we've made it. Because first they're in Egypt and they're enslaved. And when God intervenes on their behalf by sending Moses, life gets harder, not easier. You know, you, you have to collect your own straw and still make the same amount. So much as, you know, oh, if this is what salvation looks like, please don't save us. <laughs> Look what you've done. Or, you know, fast forward a bit and, you know, they've left and said, great, we're free. But hey, look, now we're stuck between Pharaoh's armies and the Red Sea. I said, great, now we've got through the Red Sea, but there's no food and water. Or there's, you know, you you go knock on their doors, any interview that interview them at almost any point, and they'll be grumbling because things aren't don't feel good. They don't seem good in the moment. We have the bird's eye view of looking at the whole history and said, oh well, why are they grumbling? They're, God is clearly leading them. We know how the story ends, and so we look at them and said, oh, faithless lot, what a faithless lot, because we see. But you you traipse around that rather barren part of the world for 40 years and see how your faith does. You know, it's it's not it's not so extraordinary that they were 
unfaithful. What is extraordinary is that God remained faithful through all of that, and that any of them, even if it was just two people, Joshua and Caleb, who kept the faith until the end. That's two more than you'd expect. And so that's that's the backstory now here. So keep that in mind as we read the next two chapters. Because they're the, the, the implicit parallel. And I'm just going to fire them out at the start. We have a sea. We have a song. We have a tabernacle. We have priests. And we have plagues. Those are all prominent features of the Exodus from Exodus 1 to the end of Deuteronomy. And particularly of the book of Exodus. You, you, we encounter all of those things already in the book of Exodus. Sea, song, tabernacle, priests, plagues. Or maybe we should start with the plagues. So in the order, plague, sea, song, tabernacle, priests. Okay, so that with that in mind, I saw another sign in heaven. It's a sign. What do signs do? Show us things. They show, and, and specifically, they point to other re realities. They themselves are not the reality. They point to another reality. So he saw a sign in heaven. He, he didn't just see a thing in heaven, a sign. And of course, ask yourself, a sign pointing to what? <clears throat> seven angels with seven plagues. Again, we have this number seven. So we've got this again. There's like a, a full serving, a full complement, seven, of angels with plagues. Which are the last. So this, we are told, this is the last vision. We've already had others. But with them, the wrath of God is finished. And remember again, this is not that we have first this, first one lot of seven, then another lot of seven, and another lot of seven, but rather these are three different layers. There's the, the, the seals, the trumpets, these bowls of, of, of plagues, this wrath. They are all like their layers. So this is the final layer, if you like, of, of, um, God's wrath. On a, on a sinful world. But the moment that's been announced, we now have to wait till chapter 16 actually to see about these angels and their bowls because the moment he's announced them, he saw something else. He doesn't see a sign in heaven. It's like sort of an external, but now he sees into heaven. He sees into heaven. Chapter uh, Verse 2, I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. And we've met this sea of glass already in uh, chapter 4, where we had the vision of the throne of God and the Lamb. And in verse six, uh, 5 and 6, we read that from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, what there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And you will, you may or may not remember that we looked at uh, Exodus thirty-four, where we had Moses, uh, so twenty-four, where Moses and seventy elders of Israel ascend to Mount Sinai, and they behold God and eat and drink and. Underneath, again, they saw God himself and the ground beneath him became like crystal, like glass. So this is a kind of um, typical biblical description of the presence of God, the throne of God. You, 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 when you see the sea of glass, you said, OK, this is it's like, um, I don't know, I, I've never been inside, but uh, I know from films that if you go to uh, um, Blenheim Palace in Oxford, there's, there's at least one hall with a very uh, spectacular black and white checkered floor. Uh, somewhere there, apparently, because uh, I just remember watching a film that was sitting there. There's really striking. And you think you said, the moment you see that, ah, we're in Blenheim Palace now. Or if you see, you know, if you see a couple of guys with big bears on their heads, it's like, okay, this must be Buckingham Palace. You know, red uniforms with a big, big bear, bear fur hat. Uh, and in the same way, you see a glass. Okay, now we are in the vicinity. We're in the presence of the throne of God himself. And so the sea of glass... And again, Rosemary asked about whether it's about carbon. And obviously, a sea of glass um, implies perfect calm. And again, in, in the kind of biblical language, biblical imagery, 
the sea is a source of danger it's a source of chaos you know how many times do you know you have storms and and, and so on <clears throat> you know jonah jonah and the ship is on on his ship in the storm is a kind of good example jesus and the disciples in the boat uh jesus calming the storm the presence of god in creation calms the storm brings the storm into and those, read psalm 107 uh you know has you know those who go down the sea and ships etc and you know they cried out to god and he rescued them you know god god uh redeemed them from that danger he has power over nature so we have sea of glass that's a kind of all the forces of danger of threat of of evil of chaos have been completely subdued the sea is not only like a, you know uh you know what where i grew up we call it a, a, um, a mirror calm you know that you can see a reflection in it but it's actually it's set it's sea of glass it's not just that it's calm it cannot be anything else the the, the sea has been set in a state of calmness there's perfect peace perfect perfect harmony now uh with uh, between god and his and his creation um and <clears throat> and it's mingled with fire you can kind of imagine so john you know he was a fisherman in lake galilee you know if you you know uh, if you're a fisherman you're coming in in the morning you'll see every so you he would have seen the sunrise six days a week you know this kind of uh maybe maybe he has something like that in mind but there's, there's this, you know, God is perfectly in control of everything. You know, everything is is done according to God's will. There is no threat. There's no danger. A perfect peace, but it's mingled with fire. This is not a dead or placid thing in that sense, or the placidity. The sea, sea is controlled or forces of evil are controlled, but there's power. And fire represents, you know, fire, fire is, is how the Holy Spirit appears in the scriptures. Um, and then we have all those who had conquered the beast and its image um, and the number of its name so remember the number of its name 666 the beast they had conquered they had overcome they had won the victory um, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands we had this image couple of you know beginning of uh, previous chapter you know, the harp and the, the harp is harping on their harps um you know this is the victorious choir the harp harp choir if you like of god's people to overcome how do you overcome the beast and its image and the number of its name how do, how does that happen what accomplishes that victory for for anyone the death of jesus that's how Jesus wins his victory. How do we win, win the victory over them? We, if we have the seal of God um, and uh, the Lamb on our forehead. Exactly. So we have received the seal of God and the Lamb on our foreheads. And that seal is a sign of victory. And by receiving that seal... so. You know, Jesus died and by his and rose from the dead. By his death and resurrection, he destroyed the power of Satan. He destroyed the power of all evil. And when we are sealed by the seal of God and the Lamb, we become shares and partakers of that victory there and then. Or in a word, baptism. We're baptized into Christ's death and resurrection. Therefore, we're baptized into his victory. And Therefore, we now this is why we sing in the church every Sunday. Therefore, with angels and archangels, with all the company of heaven. Because already on earth, when we sing our holy, 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 we are actually part of that. We are part of that great company of harpists harping on their harps by the sea of glass. Uh, there's an old um, Finnish uh, folk hymn, uh, which begins the words, uh, the, the opening line says, it's a... Uh, um, the blood of Jesus is that glass you see upon on the which the church is built. You know, so that when we when we are gathered around the throne of God, when we are gathered around the body and blood of Jesus, we are actually gathered around the throne of God and the Lamb. You know, this is where the Lamb is, and so when we are gathered around the uh, you know uh, to, rec uh, to uh, receive uh, 
the body and blood of Christ, we are in the presence of Jesus, which means that that places into this, it places into this throne room. And in fact, we are in that moment already singing our songs around the glassy sea. So the very last thing uh, that the pastor liturgically says to you before you receive communion is the peace of the Lord be with you always. And this sea of glass is the, is a visual representation of that peace that that kind of see that has been set in a state of calmness that cannot overpower us and so this again is an image of worship and if you weren't sure about that yet how about this and they sing the song of moses the servant of god and the song of the lamb now tell me about the song of moses when did moses sing his song anybody was it shortly before um they were about to enter the promised land he sang one song then yes that's in right. that's at the very end of deuteronomy there's another one was it after they crossed the red sea sorry jam say that again was this after they crossed the red sea immediately after they crossed the red sea exodus 15 hmm. and that's why i i i so tried to um manipulate you a little bit earlier by saying think exodus so it, it could be that it's a reference to uh, the Song of uh, Moses in Deuteronomy, but I think it's more likely in this reference to be a reference to Song of Moses in Exodus 15. Now, we're not going to read the whole thing. It's um, uh, verses 1 to uh, 18 of uh, Exodus. But what we have in this song, there are essentially, <clears throat> excuse me, Essentially, we have uh, there's like, there are three three parts to it or three stanzas to it, uh, where uh, Moses sings about you know gives thanks to God who brought the salvation to his people through the waters all by himself who's all the work of God. Confidence that God will deliver his people from all future enemies, and then a confident hope that the Lord would in the end bring them safely uh, to their own place which he has prepared which he calls the place of lord which you have made for your abode the sanctuary of lord which your hands have established and the lord will reign forever and ever so there's already there in the song of moses a a hint that we're not just talking about a patch of land in the middle east we're talking about an eternal abode so we're coming to god's presence they're coming to god's presence they, there's an eternal promise of eternity those are the three so that's the song of moses um which, by the way, uh, in the first ever English hymnal, uh, original English, or one of the very first English hymn books written by, uh, all the hymns were written by a man called George Withers, published in the early 1600s, never got, never came to uh, common use, although some of the melodies from it are still in use. Um, he, most of the hymns there are paraphrases of scripture, as was the custom in the Church of England at the time. And the very first hymn is a paraphrase of the song of moses and it's got little headings saying to be sung at baptisms to be sung at baptisms all 10 verses of it we haven't maybe you should um and so this song of moses is a song of deliverance the song of those who have been delivered now they've been delivered into the wilderness the sinai but they've been delivered from the enemy already so they are still pilgrim people but it's a song of the lamb at the same time, which is to say that, you know, Moses delivered the people out of slavery. He never led them into the promised land. But Jesus has led his people into the eternal rest. If you think of Hebrews 4, you know, at the end of end, end of uh, uh, the end of Moses' life, there still remained the Sabbath rest for the people of God. He had not. You know, there, there's still a rest to come in Christ that Christ delivers that rest. So it's a song of the lamb. Which is why this um, this song is not, in fact, a quotation of the song, but it's it's a, it's a new new version of the song of Moses and Lamb. Great and amazing, or marvelous, are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. There we'll come to that. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship people. You, your righteous acts have been revealed. Just a quick translate. Oh, a, a thing about the wording. 
at the very end of verse 3, the ESV says, Just and true are your ways, O king of the nations. The NIV says, Just and true are your ways, king of the ages. And New King James Version says, Just and true are your ways, O king of the saints. So which is it? And the reason, the reason why we have that is because we have different Greek manuscripts saying different things. Because nowhere in the Bible is God ever called king of the nations. Nowhere. Um, whereas the phrase king of the ages we find at least in 1 Timothy. Um, and so the question is, well, which is the original? Two things. One is that, uh, <clears throat> again, if you're looking at a pass at, at the discrepancy, remember the principle of the difficult reading. We assume that if there's a text, one is that is really difficult or and it looks unlikely to us, and one that looks far more likely, the chances are the unlikely one is the original because nobody would take change a text deliberately make it even make it less plausible, but they might change it to be more plausible. So if the phrase king of the nations is nowhere to be found, but king of the ages is, then the assumption scholars would make is, well, that it's more likely that somebody changes king of the nation to king of the ages than the other way around. And also there is, according to the majority view of scholars, the manuscripts that do have king of the nations are, generally speaking, a more reliable, better preserved version of Revelation in this particular case. So the majority view these days among scholars is that king of the nations is is more likely to be original and the reason why it wouldn't be you know why you wouldn't expect it of course because generally speaking the kind of jewish old testament and post old testament jewish thinking god is the king of the universe yes and he's the king of israel the lord of israel but call him the king of the nations because what's another word for nations Gentiles. Correct. Gentiles. God as the king of the Gentiles sounds very odd if you read the Old Testament well. So this is why uh, it is, as I said, it's um, generally speaking not, not, not thought to be, uh, it's, it's thought that this is probably likely uh, original just because you wouldn't make it up. <laughs> yeah, that's the one thing you wouldn't kind of change it to. Also, the earliest existing commentaries on Book of Revelation from the early church all quoted as saying King of the Nations. For what those were. So that's that's why that well, that's there. But anyway, that's that's a that's a small I mean God is a king of the ages as well, and he is a king of the saints as well. So you know, in a sense, you know, we don't we not lose anything um whichever way uh, you read it but again here we have we have a praising the song is a declaration of praise of god the almighty um what for just and true or you could even translate it as righteous and true are your ways O king of the nations in other words again we are talking about we're about to see great suffering and the, we begin by declaring god's justice god's righteousness and the truth of god and again if you you know think back to Rea, your comment at the very beginning of course that that was a that was a question uh, in dispute in, in book of job is god being righteous and true or not just and true or is he being unjust and untrue and of course we begin by saying just and true are your ways o king of the nations and the, another reason why I think King of the Nations is persuasive to me is because what happens next? Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? Of course, there are many. We know all those who took up the number of the beast and who worship the beast in the image are them. But the rhetorical question implies what folly? It's, a, it's utter folly not to uh, fear and glorify his name. But then we have, well, you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you. Notice, by the way, you alone are holy, which we've taken into, the, which is found in our liturgy in the Glorying Chelsis. All nations will come and worship you for your righteous acts have been revealed. Half of the verse of verse four is taken almost word for word from Jeremiah. 
Um, so in uh, Jeremiah chapter 10, verses uh, 6 and 7, uh, we read, There is none like you, O Lord. You are great, and your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O king of the nations? There's the other place. For this is your Jew, for among all the wise ones of the nations and in all your kings, there is none like you. So that's Jeremiah 6, 10. And in Jeremiah 16, verse 19, uh, we read, uh, O Lord, my strength and my stronghold, my refuge in the day of trouble, to you shall the nations come from the ends of the earth and say, Our fathers have inherited nothing but lies, etc. So these, I, these, both these lines, they, they come from um, come from Jeremiah. But of course, the same God who spoke to Jeremiah, uh, through Jeremiah, is the same God who speaks to, through John. So um, he's, he's simply, those, those promises are being fulfilled here in Christ. Because of course we know this is what happens with Jesus. Jesus. Jesus is the means by which the nations have been drawn to the God of Israel, through spe specifically through the Gentile mission. And this is one of the concerns in the whole book of Revelation, going right to the beginning, the whole question of where's the true synagogue? There's a synagogue of Satan, and then there's true synagogue. The true synagogue is wherever people worship Jesus, Jew or Gentile. And I think there's also here linked uh, at least a, 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 a uh, partial link to the book of Romans or letters to the Romans. Because Romans is of the letters um, of Paul, Romans is one that uh, one of the one of the letters in Paul where the whole question of God's wrath is particularly prominent in chapter two and then chapters nine to eleven. God's wrath against sin amongst the Gentiles, but then God's wrath also against unfaithful Israel in 1911. And which is also where the central theme of the whole letter is the righteousness or the justice of God. And, you know, that he, his judgment is true. That his, his righteousness has not and his justice have not failed, though Israel has failed to attain to the promises. And of course, the centrality of the, the the whole question of the inclusion of the Gentiles. So, in a sense, these couple of uh, this song here, in many ways, summarizes the whole letter to the Romans. And and the question of the wrath of God, which is coming up. And then another vision. After this, I looked. And then we have this strange phrase, which is. Uh, sometimes translated uh, it's, it's a translated a bit oddly by several translations because it's a strange expression so ESV says the sanctuary of the tent of witness NIV says the temple that is the tabernacle of the testimony uh, New King James Version calls it the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony uh, <clears throat> and it's odd because we got the double phrase because the, the 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 word that's translated sanctuary really just means temple. So you've got the temple of the tent of witness. And the tent, the tabernacle is just another word for a tent. So the tabernacle is what? The tabernacle of witness or the tent of witness. What's that referring to? Uh, Kylie. So is the tabernacle referring to um, the it was more the, the tent where the people worshipped God while they were traveling through the wilderness before Solomon built the temple? That's right. So that's the tabernacle. That's the tent that the, the designer which was given to Moses on the mountain, which then was constructed in the book of Exodus. And, uh, you know, Exodus has 40 chapters. And, uh, not quite a quarter of the of the book, about twenty percent of the whole of Exodus is really about the construction of the tabernacle. You know, I ask what happens in Exodus, and you will tell me, you know, Moses plagues ten ten commandments. Those things only take up thirteen chapters. Got thirty seven chapters, so twenty seven chapters still to go. Um, and the tabernacle is actually the most prominent feature of the whole book after the narrative about the release from Israel. It's just we don't, we don't, we, we don't find it immediately 
spiritually edifying. So there's a chance that you skip over that sometimes when you're reading, <laughs> reading the Bible. And certainly, you know, again, Sunday school lessons tend to be more on the stories than on the tabernacle. But the tabernacle is actually really central. And then you've got the whole of the book of Leviticus and a good part of the uh, book of Numbers, which are all to do with what goes on in the sanctuary. So this is really, really, really central. And what's the see, spiritual significance of the tabernacle? It was the place where God lived while they were traveling through the wilderness. Yeah, or oh, if, if I may rephrase ever so slightly where you said, it's the place of God's presence amongst mm -hmm. the people. So that's where that's where God met or meets people. You have, and hence the Holy of Holies, where you have the Ark of the Covenant and uh, on and the lid of the Ark is called the mercy seat. Really important. Mercy seat. Uh, and you've got the the cherubim overshadowing it and of course we you know when we encounter when isaiah encounters god in in uh, god's presence in isaiah chapter six we've got seraphim and there's some similar creatures we have cherubim we have these so heavenly creatures which are indicating that we are in the presence of god it's the place of god's presence and now we are told that the that in the heaven you have this tent of witness but it's now called the temple of the tent of witness now, of course, the temple replaced the tabernacle. Temple replaced the tent. Um, and as I said, when we studied, you know, when we came across it before, it was very controversial in its, in its day. It was, a, it was a bold move by Solomon to replace uh, the tent with a temple because it wasn't a, it wasn't a culturally neutral thing to do. Uh, and as we, as we see, if you read the history, it was misunderstood by many. So it's turned into, you know, there's all kinds of idolatry going on there in later times, which there was less like to in, in the tabernacle. So it, now here we have a temple of the sanctuary. So it's kind of these two, two things are turned into, they're kind of merged into one. The temple of the tent of witness in heaven, which is exactly what we learned in Exodus and the writer of the Hebrews also talks about, which is that the sanctuary, the temple, the, sorry, the um, tabernacle that was constructed by Moses was a copy of a heavenly sanctuary. It was a copy of the heavenly sanctuary, as, by the way, was uh, Eden and the garden in Eden. That, too, is given to us as a kind of sanctuary. And in fact, in Genesis 1, the whole world is given to us as a sort of kind of temple. Because God created all, all in very orderly fashion, and then he places his image in it. And, and, and if you go to, a, I don't know, middle of the first millennium BC, go to somebody pagan and say, can you show me where the image of your God is? They will find you the nearest temple and point to a statue. And the Bible very provocatively says, God created man in his own image. And then it's later on, and he placed him in the garden. Like, and so we have that the the... the in a sense, the whole Bible, as one of my colleagues has insisted for uh, 15 years of teaching, said the whole Bible really begins with temple, it begins and ends with temple theology. Genesis 1 and 2 and 3 are all about temple theology, and so is the rest of the Bible. And here we see it now. The sanctuary of the tent of witness was opened. Imagine that opening up. Because, of course, the whole point of the sanctuary, both the temple and the and the tabernacle before it was that it was it was full of walls and, and and gates and doors, and you can come this far, no, you know, and uh, but you have to stop here, and you and these people can go there, and that one person can go there, but only in that one day. It's it's full of obstructions, and of course the nations can come in, and now we have this picture of the temple being opened, and out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in. Tell me about their clothes. Pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. So, what, whose uniform is that? Is that like the uniform of the priests? Yes, it is the priests. And again, this is found in we have uh, first descriptions in in um, Exodus twenty eight, for example. We have a uh, the the garb of the priests. So they're dressed as priests. They come this, and again, there's this kind of uh, if you look at. Um, commentaries and revelation they'll especially the more thorough ones will have a discussion of who exactly are these angels and how are they related to the other angels before you know the trumpet angels and the seal the seal angels and so on um 
and how those related to the seven angels of the seven churches. And opinions vary, but I argued, and I'm you know the other opinions also exist, including among some much more learned people, that the my my argument was the seven angels are in fact the seven uh, the 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 to use kind of modern English Lutheran <laughs> uh, terminology, pastors of those churches. They are the, the messengers of God or priests. And uh, again, I, I sometimes like to wind uh, wind wind uh, people up uh, by making using slightly provocative language to make. And one of the ways I is that I I insist that uh, regardless of all the kind of polemic in in different directions, pastors in the Lutheran Church are also priests. It is a priestly work, um, and I won't make the case now. You can, if you want me to make the case another time, you can come and sort of uh, buttonhole me in a, uh, after church or something, and, and and we can have an argument about it. I can tell you that if I say it in past conferences, there's usually a sharp intake of breath from at least one corner of the room every time. But my argument is, I've threatened I will write an article one of these days called "If Your Past Is Not a Priest, He's Not a Pastor." Your pastor is not a priest, he's not a pastor either, because this is the priestly work. The priestly work is to deliver God's merciful gifts to God. And so these angels come out of the tabernacle, dressed as priests, and whether they are to be identified with the pastors of the seven church or not is, in a sense, irrelevant. Because you ask yourself, how do the how does the angelic work of God take place on earth? And the answer is, of course, through the, what we call in Lutheranism the office of the ministry. And so, when we think of the plagues that are coming, there is a sense in which this is a kind of heavenly judgment being kind of uh, being delivered in an sort of invisible way, in a uh, supernatural way to the world. On one hand, but on the other hand, you could say it also happens by the preaching of the gospel, by and, or more more strictly uh, speaking, by the preaching of repentance and of the gospel, because by preaching repentance and preaching forgiveness of sins, you are condemning by the preaching of repentance all unbelief is being condemned, and as we say every Sunday in the liturgy itself, unbelief and ungodliness deserves God's temporal and eternal punishment. So the very preaching of God's word is a delivery of God's wrath against all ungodliness. And we see, you know, there are examples of this in the in the New Testament. So think of someone like Simon, the, uh, Simon Magus, Simon the Magician uh, in Acts 8. You know who is he's a magician and he went in and then he he um he's baptized and when he sees the holy spirit he kind of tries to say oh give, give me can i can i buy the can I buy a bit of uh, this stuff as well so that i can do what you do because it's pretty impressive and immediately he's called a son of perdition by peter but then peter knew about that because <laughs> jesus said to him get behind me satan so by the very preaching of the proclamation of the gospel the proclamation of the gospel is a proclamation of the defeat of Satan and his kingdom. And so the priestly work of delivering God's work is one means by which the wrath of God is being delivered to an unbelieving world. And again, Paul writes about the whole the thing that, you know, where there is no law. There is no punishment when when the law is you know law there is no guilt the the preaching of the law brings about guilt and wherever the gospel of you know gospel of the kingdom is being preached the law of God is also being made known and therefore guilt is being incurred and therefore the wrath of God so so I think that the whole priestly thing here whether or not we whether or not this in, implies also that there are heavenly angelic creatures involved. It does not preclude the fact that there is also an earthly angelic uh, ministry going on, which is why it is not adequate at all to reduce the gospel to God loves everyone. That's a terrible, terrible uh, near-truth, milquitoast version of the true gospel. The gospel is not that God loves everyone. Because if you say God loves everyone, you are immediately removing the need for repentance. 
which is not to say God does not love everyone. That's, that's, not, that's not my point. But the proclamation is not God loves everyone. The proclamation, repent and believe the good news. And the good news is not God loves everyone. The good news is that Jesus carried God's wrath. And in him, God's love is offered to everyone. Now, the end result might be the same, but it's not the same thing. And I think it's one of the terrible, well-meaning errors that have crept into the church is to to lead with God loves everyone. Because he, he said, oh, great. That's good. Rosemary. I've been told you say God loves those only who repent. <sighs> I wouldn't say that either, because God does love the world. You know, John 3.16, God so loved the world. He, didn't say, he doesn't say God only loved the repent. I mean, I'm not surprised that you've been said that because that is essentially that's the ref kind of traditional reformed Calvinist position. Christ died for the elect. Christ died for those whom God had pre-selected for salvation. And so God doesn't love everyone. And those who repent who are elect, so the elect, if you're one of the elect, you will be led to repentance. But that's not, that's not, that's not right. God in a sense, God's wrath falls on all, but God's love is an offer for all as well. And therefore, the not to preach God's wrath, his righteous and true anger and judgment against sin, deprives people of the opportunity for repentance and therefore is a disservice to the gospel. If anyone ever says to you in your hearing, as the gospel, God loves everyone. Could you be so kind as to challenge them and show them a better way? I mean, Pris Priscilla and Aquila did that to uh, Apollos. He kind of had had most of the story straight, but not quite. So they 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 taught in the way of God more accurately. So you can do that too. And so the four living creatures who are around the throne of God, they represent all creation. They gave to the seven angels seven golden balls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And this is great. You can see that John is, um, is Jewish. You can't really say God and not praise him straight away the moment you call him God. This is, you find this in 1 Peter, Paul, some of Paul's letters too. The moment you say God, you, kind of, you, have to, you have to throw in a bit of praise because God is so praiseworthy. There's a terrible, terrible, terrible worship song which has the line, uh, you are worthy of my praise. It's a terrible song, but it's true. <laughs> that line is true. God is worthy of all the praise that we can muster. And here we have an, God's eternity being praised, which also therefore means his constancy and utter arena. When we, we will see things shaking in the next chapter, you know, the bowls come and the, you know, the creation itself will be damaged and destroyed and, 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 in, and kind of misshapen. But God lives forever and ever. And so if we live in him, he and we, we will be fine. And so there's this delivery of the of the seven angels, these golden bowls. Now, no, what would normally be in, in, in such bowls, in temple, bowls of, in temple like this? Does anyone know? Incense. Incense, yeah. Yes. The bowls of incense. So these are kind of... But instead of incense, which we've encountered before, which... Incense, you know, the prayers of the saints rising as incense before God. Now this, these bowls come from the temple and they're being distributed the other way. They're coming and, and they bring not, a, not a, a pleasing aroma to God from us to him, but rather God's fiery, smoky uh, anger and justice. And we are told the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. Same image that we have in Isaiah 6 when he, Isaiah comes to the temple and sees uh, in the presence of God. That whole temple was filled with smoke. And this smoke, <clears throat> again, it's, it's a concealing smoke. You cannot see you cannot see God yet, because this is not the end yet. And so there the God conceals his presence in 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 smoke or in, in a cloud. And this is confirmed by the next line. No one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Who would like to paraphrase that for, for us in a more literal way? Anybody feeling brave? 
What did he mean? No one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels. Is it that um, there was so much smoke uh, that they couldn't see anything to do anything until the smoke had cleared a bit? Uh, and what what does that signify? The question. So the, this is an image. This is a picture, if you like. So if we put it into like our into world history now, how does it play out in world history or church history, if you like? What's the what's the earthly um, earthly equivalent? Would it be that um, we are living in the time when the seven plagues have been poured out, and until that's finished, none of us can enter heaven? Essentially, yes. So we will not come into God's presence, full presence, until all things are accomplished. And when all things are accomplished, then we will see what happens then. That will come at the end of the book. And by what it, <clears throat> that word until there is a word of hope. No one could enter the sanctuary. If we, if we stop before then, no one could enter the sanctuary. That's terrible. We are barred. This is what was the case. You know, the fall led to uh, Adam and Eve being uh, cast out of the garden, the original sanctuary. They could not enter because of sin. But now we have the hope uh, promise being held out no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished and so that immediately gives us an eager longing for these things to be accomplished maranatha oh lord come quickly you know this is the kind of admin prayer of the church lord come but we pray that god would complete and accomplish his work soon though so that we might finally enter into that rest that awaits the people of god in the heavenly sanctuary, in the temple. And so next time, we will meet the seven plagues. And if you forget everything else from this uh, uh, this study until next week, Exodus, Exodus, that's, the, that's, our, that's our key word here uh, for understanding what's going on. Final thoughts, comments, questions? Would these plagues perhaps not weren't around until they were there then? I don't understand the question, sorry. The plagues are being given now, that it was given out at this time. Were they not there before? Uh, it's not, in a sense, this passage, well, well, we'll study the plagues next week, but the point, that's not really, the, the point isn't about that, about what was went on before rather this whole thing is an explanation of why uh, what's happening now why is the world the way that it is and where are we heading so we know that there are plagues already but these you know the plagues in egypt were actual literal plagues these plagues here are are images of you know they're kind of drawn that imagery but you know when when he mentions frogs it doesn't you know, the point isn't that every time you see a frog said, oh, no, God hates, the, you know, something terrible is happening. I saw a frog. Uh, it's not that. But the, those those images of the plagues are pictures of the wrath of God falling upon a sinful and idolatrous world. So they're not in that sense. We They're not to be understood literally, but rather they point to something more significant and more true than just literal images. Anything else? Anyone else? If not, we will close with prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus' victory and we thank you that we are already partakers of that. We thank you that you have given us a place through holy baptism in your kingdom and by in the presence of your throne. Guard and protect your church from all evil. Send faithful ministers and priests of your gifts to your people so that they may be strengthened against all danger of temptation and that your kingdom may continue to grow 
and expand, bringing many to repentance so that they may be saved with us from the wrath that is to come. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen. <laughs>